continue our study in the book of Ephesians and um, plan to finish chapter 1 uh, next Lord's Day, God willing. This morning, however, we're going to be in uh, chapter 18 and the first part of chapter 19. You might remember that this is a, a Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. And uh, we are continuing that study this morning. Ephesians 1 today, verses 18 and 19. This is God's Word. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, part of the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power for those who believe. I realize in some of your texts, it may not end with a period in the middle of verse 19, but it does in mine, and that's where we're going to begin or end uh, this morning, and we'll pick up the middle of chapter 19 next, next Lord's Day. That is God's Word to pray. Father, thank you so much for your Word, and we thank you for it, and we Thank you for the opportunity to spend another time in it. Uh, Father, we realize that uh, to the unbeliever, that the preaching of uh, your word is foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God unto salvation and unto sanctification. And so we pray your blessing upon our time in your word now. And that you would be with me as I proclaim it, that you would... Watch over the door of my lips. The words that I speak might be words of truth and words of grace. Minister your word to the hearts of your people. So your Holy Spirit moves among us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began to look at this prayer which Paul offered for the Ephesian Christians. And I said then... It's important to realize that the Apostle Paul believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. It's clear in the first portion of Ephesians chapter 1. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul was a man who was deeply committed and devoted to prayer. Again, there is no dichotomy whatsoever in the Bible between the truth, between the two. The fact that God is sovereign does not discourage us from praying, but in fact, it encourages us to pray. God uses our prayers as feeble and as faltering as they may be sometimes. God uses our prayers to accomplish His eternal plan and purpose in the lives of His people. My sermon last week, from verses 15 through 17, turned out to be more of a treatise on prayer. But today we're going to look more at the content of Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. You know, we can learn about how to pray from looking at how Paul prayed. We can learn what's important to pray about as we look at the things Paul prayed about. We, we can establish a more consistent pattern for prayer as we look at the pattern that Paul said for praying himself. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, I want to simply look at the focus here of Paul's prayer. And I said last week, as we looked at verses 15 through 17, that the most important prayer 
that you can pray for anyone is they would know God better. You know, our greatest need is to know God. And so the greatest prayer that you can pray for anyone is that they might know Him better. And so no matter what circumstance or situation it might be, that you're praying for someone, and I said this last week, no matter what circumstance or situation, what need it is you're praying for someone, what you need to do is pray that God will use that situation, use that circumstance, use that need to teach that person more about himself and draw them closer to him. The, the primary focus of Paul's prayer here for these Ephesian Christians is they would have an enlightened heart. Look at verse 18 where he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I want to think about that for a few moments this morning. You know, in the Bible, the heart is the center of thinking, of knowledge, of wisdom, and of understanding. So often we use the heart, don't we, to, to speak of the emotions. But that's not the primary biblical use for that term. The heart, in the biblical sense, is the core of who you are, what makes you you, what determines your character. Remember that the Proverbs tell us, watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow all the issues of life. And 1 Samuel told that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, because it's the heart that determines the real self. Jesus told us to love the Lord, your God, with, with all your heart. David prayed, O oh God, create in me a clean heart. The Bible speaks of the heart also expressing sorrow and bitterness, courage and joy. It's the source of all of our thoughts and all of our actions. And here the Bible uses an interesting phrase, doesn't it? It talks about the eyes of the heart. That, that phrase indicates that it's the heart. It's the, it's the condition of your heart that enables you to, to see life properly and accurately and have the right biblical perspective on your life. It's interesting, and I want to look at several passages uh, this morning. It's interesting, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, it's interesting that Satan used very similar wording in giving the first temptation to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Of course, the devil twisted the truth, but he told her that the reason God had put this prohibition against them eating of the tree in the middle of the garden was that God knew, he told her, verse 5, God knows in the day you eat from it, what? Your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now again, that's a perversion of the truth, but notice what he said. Your eyes will be opened. Well, what eyes was he talking about? Couldn't have been their physical eyes. She was able to see. You could see the fruit, see the garden, see the trees. It had to be the eyes of her heart. And even though he perverted it, he, he was referring to the, to the fact that 
you know, there's something beyond the physical to the spiritual. You might remember the story of Elisha in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, if you want to flip over there. 2 Kings chapter 6, where the Arameans were carrying out a plot to destroy Elisha. And the king of Aram had sent horses and chariots and a large army to surround the city of Dothan, where Elisha was hiding. And one morning, Elisha's servant I went out to survey the situation and he saw, he saw the, the Aramean army surrounding the city and he panicked and he came running back to Elisha and he said, what are we going to do? And Elisha, of course, was a great man of faith and he told Elisha, uh, told the servant, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those that are with them. And, you know, the the servant thought Elisha had lost his mind. He didn't see it that way. He'd just seen this huge army that surrounded the city. You find this in verse 17, 2 Kings 6, verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Well, what eyes was he talking about? Couldn't have been his physical eyes. He'd just been outside and he'd seen, hadn't he? He'd seen this huge army surrounding the city that threw him into a panic. It was the eyes of his heart that Elisha was praying God would open. Look at the rest of verse 17. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of Horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, when his eyes of his heart were opened, the servant was able to see these angelic beings surrounding them in the mountains. And then he felt safe. Matthew 13, Jesus says a similar thing. If you want to flip over there to Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus was teaching in parables. And you know, the message of the parables was hidden, the meaning of them hidden primarily to the unbelievers. And to explain that phenomenon, how the, the message of the parables, which really was a simple message, was hidden from the unbelievers. Jesus quoted the, the Old Testament prophets who said they have eyes, but they cannot see. I want to say they have ears and cannot hear also. The point was they could see physically, but they couldn't see spiritually. Even though they could see, they couldn't really see. They couldn't see the truth. And then Jesus turned in verse 16, Matthew 13, 16, and told his disciples this, But blessed are your eyes because they see. Well, what eyes was he talking about? Couldn't have been their physical eyes. The unbelievers could see just as well as they could. It was the eyes of their heart. Blessed are your eyes. Blessed are the eyes of your heart because you are able to see and hear the truth of the message that I am teaching. That's the focus of Paul's prayer here for these Ephesians, that the eyes of their heart would be opened, that they'd be able to see and understand and grasp the truth of God's Word and see things in a spiritual way. Well, second, I want us to see the desire of Paul's prayer. We saw the focus. The focus is their, their, the eyes of their heart being enlightened, but as a result of that, 
When, when that happened, when, when the eyes of their heart were, were opened, what was Paul's desire? What did Paul want them to, to glean from that? There are three things listed. Some commentators call them the three what's in our text. And one of those is that they would know what is the hope of his calling. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. We, we've talked about hope before in different contexts. You know, hope's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Hope's a great motivator. Hope really keeps us moving and keeps us living. We always like to have something to hope for, something to look forward to, something to anticipate. Hope is what gives us optimism for the future. If you're sick, you have hope that someday it's going to get better. Hank's had a, an injured hand. He's had hope that it's going to heal. And guess what? The bandage is off today. But that hope that it was going to improve gave him encouragement. I have hope that my eyes are going to get better. We hope for that kind of thing. If you're, if you're deeply in debt, if you're drowning in debt, it's the, it's the understanding that you can get it paid off little by little and get out of that debt. That's what gives you hope. You know, it's when we end, run out of hope, that's when we end up in despair. Most people, who take their own lives are people who have just run out of hope. And one of the great blessings of, of our call to the, of the gospel to salvation is this, this wonderful sense of hope. That's how Paul describes it here in our text. It is the hope of his calling, he says. It is a confident hope that we have in Christ. And biblical hope, again, is so much different from the way that we normally use the word. You know, we talk about hoping for things that we don't have any assurance will ever take place or become a reality, don't we? We can hope for the wildest things. We hope for so much. And many of our hopes are dashed. But the hope of our calling is sure. It's steadfast. The hope that you have in Christ will never be dashed. It is a certainty. You see, the call of the gospel, we call it the effectual call. Because when, when God calls us to salvation, He draws us sovereignly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means that our salvation doesn't depend on something that we have done, some resolve that we have made, some decision that we chose. But it depends on the sovereign work of the mighty God. And that is the call of God gives us our hope. And one of Paul's desires here for these Ephesian Christians, they would know the sure and certain hope of their call to salvation. Another of those desires was they would know the riches 
of the glory of its inheritance. Again, the text, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, this hope that we have in Christ and the inheritance that we have with the saints are closely tied together. What do we hope for as Christians if it's not this great inheritance that we have waiting for us in Christ? You might remember that back in verse 11 of of chapter 1, Paul spoke of that inheritance. He says, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Flip over with me to Colossians chapter 1 for just a moment. Where to the Colossian Christians also, Paul speaks of this, this inheritance. Colossians 1 and verse 12. Where he says, again this is in the midst of a prayer, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then if you turn over to chapter 3 of, uh, of Colossians, verse 24. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Then I want you to turn over also to 1 Peter chapter 1, where, where, where Peter ties together the hope of our calling with this inheritance that we have with the saints in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. Again, that hope is based on the call of God. Him causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why have we been born again? It is, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This inheritance is both rich and glorious. Remember in Romans 8, we're called the heirs of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. And as such, yes, we suffer with Him now, but one day we will be glorified with Him and share in His glory that the fullness of this inheritance we have in Christ with the saints is to share in the glory of Christ. Now most of us try not to think of the inheritance that we might receive from our parents, at least not until they've passed away. Whether it is a, a little or a lot, it just seems disrespectful, doesn't it, to think about your inheritance before that time arrives. But more than that, you know, whatever you think you're going to inherit <laughs> might not be what you inherit someday. So many things can change that. So many things can reduce it or even eliminate it. We try not to think about it. But folks, God wants you to think about the inheritance you have in Him. God wants you to focus upon this great and glorious inheritance that He has Reserved in heaven for you. Because you see, the anticipation of receiving that great inheritance is a, is a motivator for us. It keeps us 
going. It is part of the hope of our calling as we look forward to that great day. It can never be taken away. That was Paul's desire that the Ephesians would understand the glory of this inheritance they share with the saints. And then there's still another of those desires. We find it in verse 19. And that is they would know the surpassing greatness of His power. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe, he says. You see, Paul's pointed to the beginning of our salvation already in this prayer, talking about our call to salvation. He's talking about the end of the journey, talking about the inheritance that we have in Christ awaiting for us. Now he talks about us having the power to make it from point A to point B. Of going from our conversion, our call to Christ, to the time where we receive our inheritance. The result of this call to salvation is new life in Christ. And it gives us this assurance that one day we'll be with Christ forever. But there is this interim period we're all in it today. Where, where Jesus calls upon us to persevere to the end. One of the things that we looked at, as I, I looked at with the, with the youth this past week in youth adversity, was how our, our saving faith gives us a living faith. And that living faith is evidenced by our obedience to God's Word, by an attitude of humility before God and before others, a genuine love for God and others, and then the willingness to forgive as God has forgiven us. Now, we can't do that by ourselves. We don't have it in us to do that. That's why Paul prays here that they would know the power. They would know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. We can't do the things God calls upon us to do. We can't walk the way God calls us to walk. Live the way He calls on us to live. We can't do it on our own. That's why we need His power that is given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to the truth. The Greek word for power here is, is the word dunamis, from which we get the English word dynamite. You might remember that in Ephesians 1.16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the dynamite. It, it, it blows away the obstacles. It keeps us from believing and knowing and trusting and yielding and living. And you see, we don't just need the, the power of the gospel for conversion but we need the power of the gospel every day of our lives. We need His power, as Paul says in the prayer. We need His prayer, His power. To be able to live in obedience, to resist the devil, to stand firm against temptation, and to grow in holiness. And I want you to understand this power is available to every believer. If you're a believer this morning, that power is yours. It's not a second blessing. 
It's not something you have to wait for or anticipate. It's part of the deal. Because your identity as a Christian is the fact that you have in you the Holy Spirit. You have the power of Christ in your heart and life, even now. And so we don't pray that God would give us something we don't have. We pray that God would help us to use what we do have. That we would know the power, know His power, to live in the way that He calls upon us to live. Again, this power is something that, that Christ has promised to everyone who believes. And it's our daily experience as we walk in the Spirit. I want you to look at the book of Acts with me for just a moment to see how this fleshes itself out. Go with me to Acts chapter 4. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1. We're right before His ascension. Jesus, again, promised the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And you want you to, to see again what He told His disciples at that moment. Verse 8, Acts 1-8. But He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the early church did wait for that outpouring. But now it is the continuing gift of God's people. Flip over to Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. Remember talking about the power of Christ in us. Acts 4.33. And it says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. That's exactly what... Jesus had said the Holy Spirit would help them do, wasn't it? Give them the power to be His witnesses. Go over to Acts chapter 6. It's interesting that one of the ways that Stephen is described, one of the first deacons in verse 8, it says Stephen was full of grace and full of power. And then I want you to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul talks about that power in his own life. Second Corinthians chapter four and verse seven. It says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that's our earthly bodies, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Then he goes on to talk about that power helped him in times of persecution and perplexity and uh, affliction. You see, God doesn't want us depending upon ourselves. He wants us depending upon Him to know the power, His power. And if you, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but if you go to, 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 to chapter 12, you'll see uh, the account of, of Paul's own testimony of, where he talks about, interestingly enough, this thorn in the flesh that God gave to him. We, we think it was an affliction of the eye. And God, and Paul says, God gave that to me to make me humble. To keep me from trusting in myself. That I rely upon His power. You see, sometimes God brings us low so that we might depend more on Him. Sometimes God brings affliction into our lives so that we might rely not so much upon our power. 
but upon his. And part of Paul's desire in his prayer was they would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward those of us who believe. I could take you other verses, but I want you to just take one more, and that's to go to Ephesians chapter 3. This whole sense of the power of the gospel is an amazing thing. Something that we neglect. And I think sometimes we Presbyterians are afraid to talk about the power of the gospel. We're afraid to be labeled eccentric. Be one of them. And we deny ourselves the glorious truth that we have the power of Christ living in us. Ephesians 3, 14-16. Again, a prayer of Paul. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Down, down to verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond what we ask or think, according to what? According to the power that works in us. What a prayer. That we would know that His power in our lives. You know, if you're, you're praying for other people or you want to pray for people, and, you know, sometimes God will bring someone to your mind but you don't know exactly what to pray or how to pray. Think about the way Paul prayed. Just pray. Pray that the eyes of that person's heart will be enlightened, that they'll be able to see the truth of the gospel and what God is doing in their hearts and in their lives. Pray for that individual that God would use every circumstance in their lives, whatever specific need it is that you've been asked to pray for for them. Say, oh God would use that in their life to help them to know you better. And they pray. Pray that they would know the certainty of the hope of His call. They'd be steadfast and sure in their relationship with Christ because they know He called them to salvation. Pray that they might fix their eyes upon this great, rich inheritance that we have in Christ. And no matter how bad it gets here, they would keep their eyes fixed upon Him there. And that they would know his power. His power that works in us. That's all we have. A little story to end. I've added this down in my notes. I mentioned this morning in our prayer time that I asked for prayer for a pastor friend of mine. He was my mother's pastor in Columbia. Semi-retired, lives in Hattiesburg, goes to Columbia to do some pastoral work a couple days a week, preaches. You know, I used to do, uh, believe it or not, you do, you do uh, youth work together years ago when I was in McGee and he was in Carthage and uh, we had uh, our presbyteries joined together to, you know what they do at Twin Lakes now? We used to do that at Bellhaven College before Twin Lakes was open. 
I'll tell you, show you how old I am. I used to do it at Bellhaven College. Go there during the summer, and we'd have you run youth camps at Bellhaven, and Bill and I would do that together. And then God's providence, he became my my mother's pastor. He was there in the hospital room, and I arrived and watched my mother take her last breath. Received word. My sister called me late Friday night. Somebody left a message on their on their phone. Bill's son had committed suicide. Divorced. Been accused of some things. He lost hope. He lost hope. He lost the hope of exactly what Paul's talking about here. The, the sure hope of the call of God to salvation. The, the great inheritance we have in Christ. There's a, something far better than this waiting for us. And that even though we think we can't make it, we can. Not through our power. But the power of Christ in us. If you don't know how to pray for someone, you pray that. Father, thank you so much for your love for us in Christ. We pray, O God, for your blessing upon us. That you would richly bless our hearts. That you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might be able to see and understand spiritual realities and truths. And I pray through that that you would give us a real sense of the sure hope that we have as a result of the call of Christ to salvation. That we would focus upon the great inheritance we have with the saints in heaven. And that we would know something of the power, His power, that rests in us. Father, keep us in Your care and give us Your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.